so in a minute. There it goes. Yeah. You're here Very with alive. me, James Anderson. This is a Waywards newsletter video interview with David Rovix. David, thank you for joining me. Thank you, James. Pleasure. So we have some interview questions that we're going to roll through. I thought it'd be a good idea to interview David. He's been uh, embroiled in a little bit of controversy as of late, and so we'll get to that. He's also an indie musician that I've followed for several years, actually probably going on a decade or two now. Um, mm. So uh, big fan of his music, and I figured it'd be good to talk a little bit about that as well as some politics and the like. And so, David, I wanted to begin by asking if you could maybe tell me a little bit about yourself, those listening and watching, uh, watching and, and maybe talk a little bit about your work as a musician over the past few decades, your politics and your involvement in support for leftist and anti-authoritarian and liberatory social movements, labor struggles, uprisings, rebellions, community organizing, mutual aid efforts, solidarity, various initiatives for social change. I know you've been involved in a lot over the over the um, uh, decades that, that you've been at it. So if you wanted to maybe go over a little bit of that. Sure. I mean, it's, it's on the face of it, it sounds like a big question, but I guess that's kind of what, what I've been doing uh, for most of my adult life is, is sort of being a traveling musician and songwriter and writing songs about... Uh, struggles that are going on uh, around uh, around locally and around the world and particularly in areas that I travel in and so I've been involved with different social movements uh, that uh, I'm lucky enough to be involved able to be involved with a lot of different social movements in a lot of different places in my role as a traveling uh, performer and in my you know role as a sort of movement cheerleader uh, which is basically what I'm, you know, what, what the role I, I fulfill and, and the role that many other people historically have fulfilled as well, including currently. I'm not the only one doing this kind of thing, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's very much a, a niche profession that doesn't have a uh, category unto itself, I think, but uh, there are various people involved with this kind of uh, the you know this kind of like movement musicians or at least you know people who consider themselves movement musicians or or are you know sort of put to use as such on a regular basis. And so I mentioned the controversy that you you've been involved in or the the back and forth online uh, with some folks, and so you've written about that uh, for Counterpunch, more than one article, but in one of the pieces that you wrote. Uh, you said the following, we've got some serious choices to make. Tear each other apart in a frenzied puritanical call-out culture backstabathon, or find common ground and build a movement. The direction we're going now is down the toilet, as far as I can tell, from here amid the shit. And so I wonder if you could explain what exactly transpired in your life that prompted you to pen that piece, and why you see the frenzied puritanical call-out culture backstabathon as a real legit problem and how are you holding up amid the shit i'm doing all right but um the uh this this tendency i mean i guess i guess sort of backing up a bit i would say yeah. first of all that the tendency of the sort of backstabathon 
uh, tendency, unfortunately, is not new. I mean, it, it goes back a long ways. And, and on what you might call, in, in, in terms of what you co- might call the left, I would say it, it's certainly very, it's well, it's well documented that it goes back in much of the world, you know, at least to the 1840s and probably, you know, further back. Certainly Karl Marx was well known for uh, a lot of uh, uh, back and forth personal attacks with uh, other uh, left uh, leaders and thinkers of his day. Um, not that I'm suggesting that I'm involved with, uh, arguments with left leaders or that I'm in, <laughs> or that I'm a great philosopher or economist or anything like that, but this stuff goes way back. And, uh, and certainly, uh, in the sixties, uh, from people of my, uh, sort of, you know, I'm sort of half a generation younger than that generation, but from, you know, people that I know from, from that, so who were young adults during that period, the sort of criticism, self-criticism sessions and the sort of puritanical tendencies within the new left were very evident uh, in terms of th- th- these kinds of these kinds of call out tendencies of, of pure, pure, you know, sort of moral, moral, uh, moral outrage and, and impurity and people being better uh, leftists than other people and the conspiratorial thinking about the the sneaking uh, problems within the ranks of our movement. I mean, this kind of stuff. I mean, it it goes way back. It's it's not new, but uh, in my own personal uh, reality, uh, the I would say, uh, although my critics might disagree, but I would say it dates back for me to the Second Intifada in. Palestine, and uh, the first time I started writing any songs about the Palestinian uh, uh, situation, and and um, that uh, started me getting attacked uh, as an anti-Semite. Uh, but the, the, my current batch of uh, sort of anarcho-Puritan uh, critics, um, you know, they. The, the mostly anonymous Twitter accounts, but that are followers of a certain f- few uh, sort of uh, luminaries within this scene. Uh, they they don't they don't necessarily fall into the same category entirely as my critics from twenty two years ago, um, mm-hmm. but they but that, but they mostly do, and they they mostly are coming out of uh, a, a an orient. A sort of uh, ideological orientation known in Germany as the anti-Germans or the anti-Deutsch, and it's a very convoluted, um, a very convoluted way of looking at the world, uh, so that you can sort of they like the anti-Deutsch. They consider themselves to be communists, actually, unlike this crowd who seem to more orient as anarchists. But the anti-Deutsch consider themselves communists, and their main slogan is uh, for communism, against anti-Semitism, against anti-Americanism. So that it's a mouthful, and it's a mouthful in German too. But they're basically it's complicated but the these people came out of the left but the way they orient is the worst thing that's ever happened to humanity is anti-semitism which of course as a german is a very understandable orientation right so you can see how this philosophy gets some traction in germany in particular but uh, their main their orientation is the worst thing in the world is anti-semitism germany is the root of all evil and uh, and so we have to oppose uh, German reunification, 
which they they came around the time early 90s is when this political tendency came about basically is the way i would date it in terms of the anti-germans uh and they were against german reunification and they were against german nationalism and the way it basically after a lot of schisms the way it, it sort of morphed was they became a group that believed that you couldn't criticize anybody who was it, well, you couldn't criticize Israel and you could basically they they became a a group that w- that believed that that basically Jews were beyond criticism regardless of whether they were running apartheid states it didn't matter you know and and then if it came to Jews or anybody else who was critical of an apartheid state like say Israel <laughs> then we me specifically uh, and and then are then labeled an anti-Semite, uh, but it's not necessarily for my opposition to Israeli policies. It's usually for specific words that they think that I you know used in some context that proves that I'm some kind of an anti-Semite. So it, what they're basically doing is looking for anti-Semitism under every possible rock, you know. And so like with the anti-Germans, if you talk about bankers for example, that is veiled anti-Semitism because apparently, as we all know, the, all the bankers are Jewish. And so if you're, if you're criticizing bankers, then you must be you know, making some kind of veiled anti I mean, I grew up in New York and I didn't even have any idea that all the bankers were Jewish. You know, I had to go to Germany and learn from the anti-Germans about all the bankers being Jewish. I mean, I, I, don't even, I didn't even grow up with these anti-Semitic tropes. I, you know, I grew up in a post-anti-Semitic society called the suburbs of New York. I mean, I don't, I'm not really familiar with anti-Semitism, you know. I mean, I'm, my dad's Jewish. I grew up you know, among millions of Jews, literally, you know, in the most, in the highest Jewish concentration area in the world, New York area. But, you know, I, I didn't even, I didn't hear about these things. I didn't know capitalism and Jews had anything to do with each other. I learned all that stuff from anti-Semites later, you know. But, um, you know, and I'm learning this from my critics, you know, because all these, all the, because these people are, they are finding anti-Semitism where it doesn't actually exist, which is, which is like, they're looking for it on the left, in Germany, and now these people in Portland who come out of the same ideological tradition are looking for it on the left in the United States, and and they and just like the anti-Germans used to do in the pre-social media era, you know the um, anarcho-puritans Puritans of Portland, whatever they want to call themselves, anarchists, so-called so-called anti-fascists, and whatever they identify as, you know, they're authoritarians is what they are, but they uh, they campaign against all kinds of people who happen i think not not coincidentally to be critics of israel supporters of julian assange critics of nato expansionism i mean there's a pattern here to who they are going after in the name of anti-fascism you know it's it's a very con it's it's either it's either a very very confused bunch of people or it's a bunch of undercover cops or some combination thereof and I don't know which, but if they're not cops, they're doing a good job for Mossad, so they might as well, you know, be on the payroll. But if they're volunteers, then they're just extremely confused individuals, unless they're actually right-wingers, you know, pretending to be 
anti-fascists in order to destroy the left. But I have no idea what their motivations are, but they are um, doing a lot of uh, destructive work on primarily Twitter, which is a platform that lends itself to uh, disruption. I wonder if we could maybe unpack some of that convolutedness just a little better. Uh, Please feel free. To ask you, so with uh, the anti-German pushback uh, against criticism of bankers, right? That how did they react to a movement like Occupy Wall Street? It seems like there's you know a not insignificant part of the left that levels those criticisms against you know finance capital for good reasons. And I, I, do they just consider like everybody who is involved in Occupy anti-Semitic or like what's their position there? Yeah, this is the kind of, um, I mean, this is, it's the sort of thing that probably produces schisms within groups like the anti-German, you know, tendency, you know, and the anti-Germans, it's not an actual organized uh, organization to my knowledge. It is uh-huh. now a, basically a tendency, uh, a sort of a political tendency, but uh, and and it, I may it may also have it may also be multiple organizations for all I know but but as far as I understand it is at this point a political tendency but it's a and it's a I think a fringe one but it's one that has uh, more than it's a more disproportionate uh, influence and um, they, that is exactly the sort of thing that they do is is say like um, the like Occupy Wall Street to um, try to insert into the Occupy Wall Street uh, conversation. Uh, let that uh, criticism of the banks is uh, anti-Semitic. I think that they were on their sort of uh, on their you know sort of not not in a good position to make that argument with anti- Occupy Wall Street in particular because of its New York origins. Uh, so that 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 hampered them a little bit, you know, because they're very pro-American and and um, pro-U.S. imperialism and. Uh, and somehow that's so weird of, you would think that would alienate them from much of the left it does it does but yeah. it also the left is scared of them because they're scared of being labeled anti-semites because like being labeled an anti-semite in germany is the worst thing ever you that you could be called and, and you know uh I, I don't know if there's anything worse anyway and you know so People are afraid of these kinds of um, accusations, and and then and and Germans are generally very thoughtful people. It's a very you know, especially I don't know what society used to be like, but certainly in the post-war era of you know the past thirty years that I'm familiar with German society, it's a very thoughtful place. And uh, if people are being accused of even vaguely of possibly being anti-Semitic, there's going to be a lot of people thinking about that and not just uh, dismissing such accusations. People take this kind of stuff very seriously. And so it's very disruptive when these kinds of accusations are being made as they are constantly being made by the anti-Deutsch, uh, you know, against anybody who is anti-capitalist or, um, you know, involved the global justice movement, which is somehow, uh, you know, veiled, uh, you know, anti-Semitism, or uh, the anti-war movement. Uh, the anti-war movement is accused of being uh, anti-Israel, uh, you know, and then, of course, anybody who's involved with organizing against Israeli apartheid or, you know, pro-Palestinian, well, that's, they're, they're obviously anti-Semites. So the that's what they do, is they, they disrupt the left by making these kinds of accusations much the same way 
as my critics uh, in you know today in Portland do in the United right. States. Right, and I want to get to the the homegrown critics. Although you mentioned mm-hmm. that some of the ideological connections, but but before turning there, I, I'm just curious how you got on the anti-German radar to begin with. Is it because you're a musician who plays overseas often and are outspoken on these issues, or why? Because you're you're I mean you're based in Portland now, correct? And so mm. not in Germany. Like why why is it they focused and you know honed in on you? Well, just because, I mean, I tour a lot in Germany as well as a lot of other countries in Northern Europe. And um, so uh, basically after the first Intifada started in 2000 in in, uh, Palestine in September 2000, and I wrote, uh, I started writing songs about uh, the struggle there and I got a tour of Israel canceled. Um, Then uh, somehow or other I got on the radar in, in Germany and I mean, it wasn't hard because uh, they're looking. There's certain people they're looking for anybody who's who's writing um, songs that are uh, against uh, Israeli uh, policies. So you know that was uh, basically as soon as I started doing that, I got on a, a various bunch of different radars. I mean, I got on the anti-Deutsches radar. I I got on the um, sort of various elements within Israeli society started sending me a lot of hate. And then I also uh, started getting um, on the radar of the Palestine Solidarity Movement and of the Palestinian diaspora by writing songs about uh, the struggle in Palestine that that moved people. So I, I started hearing from hearing from a lot of different people and and um, and it's been mostly a, a wonderful experience to meet Palestinians uh, and their supporters from around the world. But I've also met a lot of their uh, critics and their enemies, and have become an enemy <laughs> of their, <laughs> the same people that hate them. You know, although they package themselves differently depending on what they're doing and what society they're communicating in. I mean, I you know, I don't know who these people are or who they work for, what they're really doing. But. So in your counterpunch piece, uh, you, met, you mentioned that uh, there are people you wouldn't bother trying to denounce because they're not running any countries or bombing civilians and that you're much more interested in ending imperialism, which is, as you pointed out, your, your critics seemed less concerned with, uh, but you're uh, you're more interested in ending imperialism than in condemning, condemning some dude who wrote a fucking book that hardly anyone has read. And so could you contextualize that a little bit for us and elaborate on the importance of political priorities, which seems to be the assumption that's that's baked in there? Yeah, I think that the, what has what has become of certain sectors of the left, you know, particularly the online left, you know, particularly the English language online left, uh, has become a culture of uh, denouncing people for their uh, transgressions, uh, as and and calling that activism of some kind, and um, it, it, this is a problem of of I think not seeing the you know not not keeping your eyes on the prize you know people need to have an orientation around what kind of society we're trying to build and how we're trying to build that and what are the obstacles in our way and if those obstacles in our way are other leftists that we need to denounce for their perceived transgressions or impurities or thought crimes uh, then we got a big problem and and this uh this whole sort of um 
uh, orientation around um, uh, people, you know, not saying anything that you disagree with because by doing so you're creating an unsafe space and you're, you know, all this kind of, this kind of gibberish that gets thrown away is just uh, thrown around. It, it has nothing to do with what the kind of real honest conversations and that we need to be having in this society, which are going to be creating a lot of unsafe spaces. So people need, you know, safe spaces to try to create a, 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 a livable society in, uh, I, I'm afraid they're going to have to, you know, hide somewhere because it's not going to be safe, you know, and it's, um, this is not the way forward. This kind of uh, you know safe space activism. You know the the kind the way the way forward is going to be a lot harder than that. We we don't need to be forming safe spaces that we are, you know. We need to be creating a society that's safe for everybody. You know, and uh, this is um, uh, the kind of the kind of work that needs to be done involves building bridges, not calling people out for transgressions and people who spend all their time calling other leftists out for transgressions are doing us all a disservice and it, you can see um on the twitter accounts of the people who spend much of their time attacking people like me that all they do is attack other people on the left you know mostly occasionally they'll go after liberals like the mayor of portland you know but otherwise they're mostly attacking left-wingers for our various transgressions and you know they think that's some kind of activism uh, it's not and one of your perceived transgressions had to do with reading discussing a book could you just briefly uh, oh sure mention that? i'm an i'm an anti-semite because i associate with people that are accused of being anti-semites so if you interview somebody who is considered to be by somebody to be an anti-semite then that makes you an anti-semite you know so uh that's my that's my transgression is is um is basically being a friend of gilad atzman's of uh interviewing him a couple times uh, playing a gig with him he's a brilliant musician uh and and uh liking his book the wandering who um, because if you like that book, then you're an anti-Semite. Because um, apparently, I just I can't figure out why. But apparently, I'm too stupid to understand why that book is anti-Semitic. Um, you know, because despite my fairly vast knowledge of Jewish history and uh, identity and European history, I'm I'm missing um, some crucial bits that, if I knew better. I would understand how this book is anti-Semitic, but uh, you know, having read the book and having read various histories of the Jews and having read quite a bit of European history and having grown up among millions of Jews, apparently I'm still unqualified to uh, to um, uh, say that the book was interesting and you know, thinking the book was interesting makes me an anti-Semite. And then my other transgression was uh, interviewing Matthew Heimbach, who is a former white nationalist who uh, people say is still a white nationalist. And therefore, for me to talk to a white nationalist makes me a white nationalist. And I would argue that actually it's very important to interview white nationalists because they fucking run the country. You know, so if you want to talk to people that that, you know, have just recently had state power and might have all kinds of other plans, uh, you know, 
it, it behooves us to understand who these people are. And there's uh, it, and that, and you and that's important to do also in public forums, I think you know. But the fact of the matter remains that I have never interviewed a white nationalist. I interviewed a former white nationalist who people say is still a white nationalist. So, and that makes that makes me one too. Also, it makes me uh, a suspect for being too stupid to understand that the guy is still a white nationalist because for all my continual correspondence with him, I can't seem to understand why uh, people say he's still a white nationalist. So that makes me a white nationalist or just plain you know really dumb or something this might be a slight tangent but sort of as an aside i have a real issue or i i i do not appreciate attempts to i mean since i would call them censorious attempts to uh to lambast folks for reading unapproved books as if it's not possible to, you know, take a critical eye and glean yeah. something that might be useful and then, you know, also recognize when somebody's full of shit or when, you know, their their politics are garbage or when morally speaking they're abhorrent or whatever. Like I mean, just to give one example among, you know, I I, I don't know, in, innumerable that, that could probably be put forward, but uh Heidegger, for example, right? He he was a card-carrying Nazi, right? And the black notebooks make it clear that you know there were uh, some of his philosophy was certainly informed by his Nazism. But yet, students Hannah Arendt learned quite a bit from Heidegger. Uh, Marcuse definitely broke from him earlier than Arendt, but you know popularized Heideggerian Marxism, right? Like he still had an influence on him, but not. The Nazi part, like, like that's a possible thing, right? People, yeah, uh, people are capable of of that, you know. Like I, I think yeah. sometimes, I don't know, like like nuance just gets totally lost, and as does recognition of the human faculty for discernment. And so I don't know if and, and and art that happens a lot in art too now, and I, I guess with you know the rise of you know what you referred to as cancel culture, that that's becoming an issue. I wonder if you had any any thoughts on that too, especially from the artist's perspective yeah i mean this is i mean this is basically what we're talking about in terms of these kinds of campaigns so so the thing is that because i have made these transgressions of talking to the wrong people and refusing to uh abjectly uh, you know you know apologize about it enough and 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 recognize the rightness of my critics in in uh in their views on on gilad atzman and matthew heimbach uh, so that makes me, um, you know, persona non grata, and that makes me someone who should be canceled. And so these people, uh, and I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not casting, a, 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 you know, accusations uh, without uh, any merit. I have uh, vast public documentation of this, uh, including lots, you know, 200 megabytes worth of screenshots in case they want to delete their Twitter accounts, they can all feel free to. But what uh, what what has been, uh, va you know, abundantly documented uh, is is that th there are people engaged in coordinated uh, activities online to try to ruin people's lives and uh, careers, and they do this uh, intentionally. They coordinate, and furthermore, I have personally known lots of people who have been involved with such campaigns who think that this is, uh, uh, you know, a great thing to do. Uh, although, pe although to be 
you know, m the people that I personally know who have been involved with such campaigns have been uh, specifically targeting the far right. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but, uh, you know, and they've been doing exactly the kind of stuff that these people are doing uh, to me. You know, so I'm very familiar with, with uh, this kind of stuff because I, although I have never engaged in these kinds of activities uh, myself, and I have a lot of issues with uh, trolling for whatever purpose and, and for these kinds of like cancellation campaigns, no matter who you are trying to go after, um, I think it's especially abhorrent when you are somebody claiming to be a leftist uh, do, uh, conducting a cancellation campaign against another leftist. But I, I think it's... Um, it, I think it's basically a, a bad uh, tactic generally, but uh, in this particular kind of uh, instance, it's um, it's just such a classic uh, circular firing squad kind of thing. But the, but the stuff they do, uh, it, you know, they do to a lot of different people. A lot of different people have had these kinds, of, continue to have these kinds of experiences, often you know involving the same little troll farm that attacks me. But you know, there's lots of other people who join in uh, these kinds of campaigns, which is why these campaigns can be so powerful and why Twitter is such a good platform for these campaigns, uh, because you can have such influence by just, you know, you can have 14 followers on Twitter, but if you tag people and you know how to use the platform, you can make a lot of noise and, and they, uh, they're good at it. And, and, and then once they got, you know, a bunch of people saying, oh, this guy said this and he's really dumb and how could anybody say that and anybody who says that and is an anti-semite you know people see that and they're like oh yeah yeah that makes sense and, and then they agree you know without having any idea of the background or whether this statement is really true or not you know people there's certain people out there who want to believe that um that there is this phenomenon of of artists and intellectuals and other folks just like selling out and going to the dark side you know this, this kind of thing doesn't really actually happen much as far as i know you know, usually if somebody, if somebody's one way politically to begin with, they're probably not going to just, you know, in, in their adult life, you know, if they're over the age of 30, you know, they're probably not going to make some radical change from fascist to communist or the other way around. You know, they probably have a background that led them to certain kind of conclusions that like solidarity is the way to go or that, you know, white supremacy is the way to go. And, you know, they're not going to like change that orientation. You know, it's kind of deep rooted kind of stuff, you know, but there's a certain group of people who, who has this kind of, I don't know what it's all about, but you know, they, they want to know, they want to think that they have some kind of secret that other people don't have. And then these, you know, these people, some people can just sell out somehow they're, they're sell their souls and turn to the dark side. And, and they, there's, there's this whole discourse that you can find on, on Twitter and elsewhere. And that's very popular that like, Oh, that person, you know, he used to be left wing, but now he's fash, you know? <laughs> well, okay. Really? You say so, so I guess it must be true. You know. And so back in early February, the Portland chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA, tweeted the following. Thank you to everyone who raised concerns about David Rilvick's being on the program for today's 2 p.m. rally at City Hall. He will not be performing. Please join us to support city workers. So I wonder if you could provide any context that might help us understand what was going on, the invitation that you initially received, as well as how and why you were uninvited uh, 
by the DSA there. And what is your relationship to the DSA now? And then I want, I'm just curious what your assessment is of the national organization as well as that the local chapter there in Portland in terms of its political ideas and, and practice and organizing. So basically, I've been singing at labor rallies in Portland and around the world for a long time, for decades, on, on a regular basis. Usually a hell of a lot more labor rallies outside of the U.S. than inside the U.S. because the labor movement in the U.S. tends to be pretty anemic until recently. But um, I, w I sing at a fair number of labor uh, events, and I uh, was uh, invited to sing at a labor uh, rally at City Hall uh, for the city workers uh, who were considering going on strike. And um, I wrote a song for the occasion, uh, which the folks liked and which got used on various labor radio shows around the country. And I was... Um, gonna sing at this uh, rally and then um, as I had done just two weeks earlier at another labor uh, rally for the city workers that was also uh, organized or co-organized by DSA chap the DSA chapter and then um, but then uh, I think it was actually hours before the rally uh, the DSA chapter started getting bombarded with messages on Twitter about how I'm in Holocaust denying anti-Semite and this was a campaign led by the same troll farmers that are constantly attacking me, uh, particularly that this guy at Hazel on Twitter, who H-E-Y-Z-E-L-L, -L, this guy is completely dedicated to ruining my career, as is obvious if you look at his uh, presence on Twitter. And so... He was going after um, uh, the DSA and tagging them with all kinds of posts about how they're having this terrible anti-Semite play at their rally. And, um, and basically uh, making uh, them feel like th it was not safe to have me uh, play at the rally. Uh, which is very ironic because Hazel uh, apparently claims to be Jewish and uh, claims that because of his uh, Jewishness, uh, he's unsafe being around an anti-Semite like me, which is just the most bizarre thing I've ever heard. But people believe that uh, kind of nonsense because they believe this like, uh, you know, you, you have to believe the victim. You know, it's this it's this insanity of, uh, you know, this sort of believe the victim idea taken to the most ridiculous extreme you can imagine, which is, um, of course, and self-identified self victim oftentimes. Right. Not, not oh, even the, oh, yeah. victimized and actually not in most cases. No, if you if you really, truly believe completely like 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 uh you know in 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 a very american way that only americans can do like this complete puritanical beliefs that, you know that 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 you know just completely tunnel mind you know you know like horse blinder kind of you know you know belief in the concept of believe the victim you know because we we americans we have to take everything to its logical ridiculous extreme you know like beyond <laughs> where it ever had any useful concept you know of course the idea of believing the victim is a very important thing and of course so many actual victims yeah, haven't yeah. been believed of course when we're talking about children victims and women all sorts of people you know are victimized in all kinds of ways systematically and, and tend not to be believed by the people that need to be believing them mm -hmm. you know and of course that's a very very real phenomenon but 
the way that so that this, logic carries over to to you. <laughs> yeah, the way that logic carries over to me and to so many other people online in the nexus, as as the the hosts of the podcast fucking canceled, they call this uh, whole scene the nexus. And I think that it's good to have a word for this people because in cancel culture, it's overused, right? Mm-hmm. We can call and and it's also we're talking about we're talking about a sort of a, a, a subset of society that believes in att that a attacking fellow leftists on Twitter is a form of activism. So, you know, when you're talking about this subset, you know, we know who we're talking about, but it's a certain subset of society that we're talking about. Well, you can call it what you want. We can call it whatever we want, but I think calling it cancel culture is, is just doesn't really work when we're talking about the whole subset mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it's not that all these people are involved with cancellation campaigns on a constant basis. It's that, uh, it's that we're talking about people who believe that this kind of thing is good, even whether or not they're involved with it. You know, people who don't see that, you know, organized campaigns to ruin somebody's life is not a form of activism. Like it's not a good thing to do that. You know, it's not the way forward to build a movement, you know, to, to like sort of take out elements of the movement, you know, I mean, what they're doing in Germany, by the way, the anti-Deutsch or the what's morphed into the new whatever they call themselves, the people involved with the movement against uh, the coal mining in uh, in Western Germany, uh, what, now they're they're putting out this this idea that white people with dreadlocks are racist. So because somehow, uh, you know, letting your hair dread if you're white is is. Uh, cultural appropriation and therefore racist and therefore these terrible racist people shouldn't be allowed to participate in the environmental movement and like if anybody's been involved with environmental you know radical environmental movements like people that occupy you know coal uh, operations and climb trees and prevent uh, logging from happening. You know, uh, it's overwhelmingly white people, and it's and, and a hell of a lot of them are white people with dreadlocks. Yeah, they're and just, that's just as true in the United yeah. States or Germany. You know, so if what what you know, if you're going to try to divide the movement, you know, you'll just ran randomly come up with this bullshit about dreadlocks being racist, and then you know, then you then you have just created. It's like throwing a grenade into because because of course these people are all very sensitive about accusations of racism they take this stuff seriously these are good yeah. folks you know these are well-meaning you know progressive folks who want to stop a coal mine of course they're not going to just think that these accusations of racism mean nothing you know that's serious stuff to accuse yeah. people of racism and then then so what does that do you know that just it's so destructive you know, and not which is not to say that you can't be racist with it on the left. You know, of course. Yeah, you that, can. that's the point. But that, that doesn't mean. But, but then you don't out. solve that problem. Sorry. What's I, that? I, no, yeah, I just wondered if if you could maybe help me uh, parse out how you how you view this because, um, I mean, going back, you mentioned the activism in the the 1960s, like thinking about Students for Democratic Society, for example, right? and how there was um, a lot of inner conflict that emerged and unnecessary self-criticism. But there was also, I think a lot of people would argue, necessary self-criticism or criticism within the movement and within that specific organization too, right? Uh, because you know, it was male dominated. And of course, you know, there's history of racism within the labor movement. So these things have do and, and have existed, but that, but there's a difference between identifying like legitimate aspects of racism or, or patriarchy or whatever in those practices and trying to deal with those versus casting a net where it doesn't apply. And so I wondered if you could, like, how do you parse that out personally? 
I think that that these kinds of when when there are problems within movements and and organizations, it's really important to work on those problems and for for people to progress as human beings, and and that is vitally important. And there are ways to make that happen and ways to make that not happen. And mm-hmm. the way not to make that happen is uh, to uh, turn your movement into a acidic kind of like environment uh, where people don't trust each other and they're constantly making personal attacks against each other in public forums for their perceived transgressions. That mm-hmm. is not the way forward. Mm-hmm. The way forward is, is, is much more difficult and much more demanding and it involves actually, you know, having personal relationships with people that you uh, have problems with and, and working those problems out uh, within uh, organizations, not uh, just casting aspersions into the Twitter sphere, you know, which is just, there's nothing even remotely resembling accountability involved with just casting aspersions onto public forums on corporate social media platforms. You know, I, I mean, if you if you want to actually work stuff out and hold people accountable for actual bad things or actual real real transgressions, uh, then then there's all kinds of ways uh, to do that effectively. That hopefully don't d- destroy groups and don't destroy movements. But if you're going about if you're going about trying to destroy a movement or destroy a group, then you're obviously not going to be concerned with. Uh, how your uh, how your the accusations you throw around are going to um, impact uh, the groups because that's not your concern. But if your concern is actually a, a, a movement that is actually uh, building and growing and and thriving, uh, then you need to think about uh, that before you just go trying to take down anybody who has seems to have a little bit more influence or power than than you have which which seems to be largely what's going on here you know i mean you know it's, it's complicated because of course um people do have all kinds of issues that need to be resolved and sexism and racism and transphobia and all these things are very real and, and even anti-semitism is real even though it's uh, not nearly the kind of problem that mm. on the left that uh, these people uh uh, want to think that it is. Do you, but, do you think uh, that, because, I mean, there's arguably arguably been a resurgence in um, fascist sensibilities or proto-fascist sensibilities, if, if you'd rather, right? And so I wondered if you think anti-Semitism has been growing in the U.S. as of late, even if it's still relatively marginal, uh, and, and if that maybe accounts for some of the, the popularity of the, the your the luminaries who you know have championed the the David Rovick's criticism, or or how do you see that? I mean, there's all kinds of weird people out there, including far right anti semites. But uh, so I mean, just to be clear, the point that I tend to be making with my uh, wingnut attackers is mm-hmm. that anti semitism on the left is not. Uh, the kind of problem that they think it is. In yeah. fact, it's a, not a problem at all, really. On the left. Uh, on the left, specifically. Um, but uh, whether anti-Semitism is growing uh, or not 
I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, definitely the far right is growing. And the far right, uh, I think today has a lot of different characteristics than the far right used to have. And my impression uh, generally is uh, for many people in the far right, at least in the sort of Trump camp of the far right, Jews are not the problem. <laughs> I don't think Trump thinks Jews are the problem, but um, he has other enemies, you know, like China. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, but fascists, it's, fascism is a flexible kind of thing because it's an yeah. opportunistic phenomenon in the first place. You know, National Socialism, which is what fascism is and, and what it always, what the Germans always, you know, the German fascists always wanted to be called National Socialists. They, they often eschewed term, the term Nazis, preferring National Socialism because they really wanted to emphasize that what they were advocating was a variety of socialism. And they wanted to put that out there because socialism was very popular and they knew right. socialism was very popular. But, you know, the nationalism was also potentially something that was popular. And so they could throw the nationalism in with the socialism. But you can do that in all kinds of different ways. It doesn't need to be something where your scapegoat is a particular group you know you don't have to always scapegoat the jews that's just something that europeans have been doing for the past thousand years you know uh yeah. you don't have to do that you know you can you can scapegoat blacks too you know mm -hmm. that's that's more that's a much more american thing to do is to immigrants scapegoat, refugees you know, black yeah. black and brown people immigrants refugees yeah yeah that's who we scapegoat in the united states we don't really do the jewish thing so much anymore I was just thinking, you know, the um, the demonstrations in Charlottesville, like, there certainly seemed to be elements of anti-Semitism present there that were Trumpist in, in nature. But I don't know how much that I don't know how much that accounts for did a, that that movement overall, if you want to call it that. Um, so I think you, I mean, okay. those those guys, the the the, uh, the far right exists and, and it certainly showed uh, some, you know, it's, you know, it, it it had a demonstration that how many people did they have there in Charlottesville, 1500 or something? I mean, I, I wasn't there, but there, I think, you know, the far right has demonstrations in Germany uh, that are three or four times bigger than that Charlottesville demo uh, every few months. And, you know, I mean. You know, the far right, I would say, in the United States is really not very well organized compared to a lot of other countries. But, I mean, when we're talking about the real far, serious, like, you know, the, the, the sort of Nazi far right, you know, right, the, right. the, the anti-Semitic and the ones who hate everybody, you know, those, you know. But when the we're right talking really about well the, organized, but the, extreme the right is well organized, but I would differentiate between... Yeah, I mean, I would say there's a there is a distinction, uh, and, and it may be a a fraying uh, one. Uh, it may be mm -hmm. a hard one to, to define, but I think there's a distinction between these groups, like you know, the National Socialist Movement, you know, groups like that, and um, and 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 your average uh, you know Trump supporter, you know, mm -hmm. you know, gun collecting Trump supporter. You know, right. this is, but so when we're talking about the right, and we're when we're talking about Trump, who is you know one of the most popular people in the United States today and is probably going to be the next president of the U.S. again. Uh, you know, he, I, I think that uh, Jared, Jared, uh, you know, what's his name? You know, his Kirshner. Uh, yeah, he's more representative of what Trump uh, stands for than than uh, the, the National Socialist movement. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, 
he's Trump is not uh, going after uh, Jews. You know, he, that's not his thing. You know, and uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if you know, I don't, I don't necessarily know if he has any interest in rounding people up and and gassing them either. I don't, I don't think he's necessarily that kind of. Uh, uh, I don't think. I mean, I, you know, I don't. I could be wrong. I just don't think that that's necessarily Trump's plan. I don't think that's his thing. I think. I think that the popularity of the right, and here again, I, I would really distinguish between the right and the far right. But the popularity of the of the right, not counting the the maybe like less than one percent fringe of of uh, real you know real real Nazis, but the popularity of the right in the United States when we're talking about people like Trump, and the popularity of the right in France when we're talking about Le Pen, and and. Uh, also, India. When you're talking about Modi and Bolsonaro in Brazil, and so many others, mm-hmm. um, it is not primarily a thing, a phenomenon that is inspired uh, by uh, racism or uh, xenophobia. Mm. It, it, it uses all these right wing movements right. Um, use xenophobia and racism to their uh, benefit. Um, but I think. That I think that people are generally driven by uh, poverty, despair, hopelessness, and uh, you know a feeling that things are getting worse. You know, like the average Trump voter was uh, somebody whose whose income declined over the previous ten years. I mean, that was the the most biggest factor that determined who voted for Trump because you know he got a lot of votes from women and black and brown people too contrary to popular mythology you know and and what determined who voted for him was largely uh you know were were they people that whose whose livelihoods were declining but I think that's true of, of the populated right-wing movements all around the world. I mean, that's, you know, that when, when, and that was also a, a massive part of the popularity of the National Socialist Movement in Germany in the 1920s mm-hmm. and 30s. You know, sure. it was not necessarily uh, driven then either by uh, xenophobia or, or racism or anti-Semitism. It was, it, it, it certainly used those things, and certainly Hitler was a rabid anti-Semite who had all kinds of wild ideas, which he actually carried out about, you know, killing you know millions of people for nothing but their uh ethnic background that actually all really happened or what's that i said or or, or other other crimes like right? yeah. not being communist being gay not, being not handicapped to, not to diminish, yeah not to diminish the, yeah. you know, anti, no. the genocidal anti-semitism but yeah no yeah i mean yeah a, a disproportionately large number of of the victims were jewish and the jews were generally treated the worst you know but it's, it's uh, levels of horror and and uh, you know yeah but uh, go ahead, go ahead. yeah I, I think but they but the the movement of national socialism at the time was i think and I mean, you know, I think histor- history bears it out that in terms of what people were motivated by and what people are motivated by today, which is, uh, I mean, they want to survive, they want to prosper. And, and generally, uh, you're talking about societies where the uh, social Democrats or their equivalent in the United States, we're talking about FDR and the Democratic Party and other countries, we're talking about other, you know, parties, but the, the social Democrat type tendency uh, when it's in power, when we're ta- or Lula in Brazil, or you know, m- in recent years, um, the 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 Congress Party in India, um, 
you know, when the social Democrats, when, when they don't serve the interests of the working class, when they consistently fail to serve the interests of the working class, when the working class, the majority in every society, you know, any society, the working class is the majority. When the working class, when their uh, livelihood continually declines uh, under the administration of these social Democrats, uh, you know, ultimately people get fed up with it. And, and, and they, you know, no matter how many times they're told, uh, you know, nobody's going to represent your class interests better than social Democrats, they're like, well, fuck it, they're not doing a good job here. So, you know, if they have the option of voting uh, for a further left party, like, say, in Denmark today, where Ines Listen is now, the unity list is now the third biggest party. I mean, they'll they'll vote for, for uh, left-wing parties. But if the left-wing parties don't seem to be viable, uh, there's a lot of people who, for whatever reason, and I know many of us on the left who have grown up on the left and have a left-wing analysis of history and reality, we have trouble imagining why this is. But the fact is that there are millions and millions of people in every society around the world who, when they don't have options that seem viable on the left and when the Social Democrats or their equivalent have been stabbing them them the back for the past 50 years, they actually will vote for the far right. Mm -hmm. And that's what they did in the United States when they elected Trump, and that's what they did in, in India when they elected Modi, and that's what they did in Brazil when they elected Bolsonaro. And that's what they did in Hungary when they elected Orban. And this is not rocket science. And that's why people love Putin as well. And I would probably go so far as to suggest that the shift rightward also occurs when not only is there an absence of a strong uh, electoral left, but also the absence of a strong you know uh, leftist social movement uh you know under underpinning things or absence of a really strong labor movement and, and that sort of thing too um yeah. just to, uh, to try absolutely to, to connect to the grassroots to, to you know what's going on at the, the ballot box and at the nation state level um, absolutely especially but, in the united states especially in yeah. the american context because we don't have a multi-party democracy where there's any chance for an actual left-wing party so we we're going we're stuck with this two-party system and what we have now is a situation where the more right wing of the two parties, although I think that's hard to argue depending on the issue, but the, the nominally more right wing of the two parties, the Republicans, have now become a, uh, a, a basically a neo-fascist party. And do you think the some of the tendencies that we've been talking about on from within the left are also contribute to that rightward shift, to that great moving rightwardness in, in the U.S. that is, you know, the, the censorious anti, uh, you know, uh, libertarian tendencies, which which really, like, you know, uh, I would say uh, are in stark contrast to the strong tradition of, uh, you know, anarchistic libertarianism on the, the on the left. Uh, but there's been an interesting shift in you know, ideological, ideological positionality or, or however you want to refer to it. Yeah. So I wonder if, do you think that is contributing or has contributed to the appeal of the right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, polls show that if Bernie Sanders had been running against Trump, Bernie Sanders would have won, uh, but not in the case of uh, Hillary Clinton and, you know, in the polls, you know, so in that the the uh, what people were looking for in 
uh, Trump w- w- was some kind of solution to their problems. And, and that's what they were looking for in, in Sanders, too. But people generally didn't feel like Hillary Clinton was going to offer that uh, to take the example of the 2016 election because, you know, people, many people saw her as representing the interests of the elite and somehow saw Trump as somehow less elitist, which is mm-hmm. amazing, but, you know, true anyway, that a lot of people somehow viewed him as, as more of an outsider despite his billion dollars and whatever. But yeah, I think it's the same. The same kind of phenomenon is uh, happening with the rise uh, or the growth, to some extent, wherever it's growing, of the Republican Party is is uh, a lot of people. And of course, you can see how it's growing in Rust Belt areas that were used to be uh, reliable places that people would vote Democrat. And you know, people are increasingly not uh, trusting that the Democrats are going to deliver anything and so they're they're in desperation uh, looking to the other option which which was which was inconceivable for decades and decades and the elements of the cultural authoritarianism that's become more prominent on the left seems to be exacerbating all of that uh, and so yeah. we have a, a few the more libertarian questions. what's that yeah. The libertarian tendency that people have uh, is is not uh, is is less and less uh, being nourished by the Democrats or the left, which right. more and more is perceived, I think, rightly in many in many you know as far as subsets of the left goes, as uh, authoritarian and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and intolerant. So we have a few more questions to get through. Uh, I want to be mindful of your time, though. Are you doing okay? Oh, I'm, I'm good. Yeah, no problem. Okay, great. And I thought of one that I that I did not uh, think of when I was coming up with the, the list of questions. You'd mentioned corporate social media platforms in passing about, I don't know, 20 minutes ago now, but I made a note mm-hmm. of it because I know you've, you've written about, you know, uh, the problem presented by something like like a Spotify, for example. Um, and so, and I wondered if you could just, because I'm you know very interested in uh, media studies and that sort of thing. Mm. So I wondered if you could maybe briefly talk about the, the problem of uh, corporate media platforms, especially from an artist's perspective. Well, I think, I mean, in terms of, in terms of uh, communication, and I, I think that the platforms are all, are all really problematic in all kinds of different ways. Like, you know, tw- Twitter is, is so easy. It, it, it really facilitates trolling uh, very much. And uh, the algorithms uh, of uh, Facebook uh, really um, uh, encourage people to argue with each other and, and encourage people to see only the most uh, emotionally charged uh, posts. And, and they have no idea that this is the case. And many people still think that their feeds are chronological, but in, you know, they're not, and they haven't been for a long time. And on YouTube, um, their algorithms uh, continually feed people disinformation. And, and all this is very uh, obvious to anybody that, that, that uh, is studying these platforms, but less obvious to people who are just casual users of these platforms. Uh, from but um, so I think um, it, these the debate often becomes this fake debate of one about like censorship versus free speech, which is, I mean, maybe an important debate in itself, but but it it's sort of like covering for the real sort of problem underneath all that which is the algorithms and how they how they feed uh, how they how they basically warp debate you know so they they 
and this, how the social media platforms uh, function, which is which is not to encourage um, real communication, but to encourage people to be addicted to their platforms, which is not mm-hmm. the same thing. Um, but then, uh, so uh, from as far as uh, artists, uh, from from there's a lot of different ways to approach the question of social media and uh, from the perspective of the artist. But one is that um, when Facebook introduced their uh, algorithm-based feed uh, rather than the chronological feed, um, I, I have no idea how many people uh, were devastated financially by that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there were so many artists who who had basically given up on their email lists because everybody was on Facebook and the feed was chronological and you basically, if you had thousands of followers, you got a lot of people seeing your posts and, and, uh, and it worked pretty well, kind of like an email list. Uh, but then they changed that, you know, overnight and, and suddenly it, you know, the feed was no longer set up that way. If suddenly all your thousands of followers were not going to see anything you post unless you, you know, uh, posted the right kind of baby pictures or wedding pictures or, you know, video, uh, uh, of your cat or whatever, you know, stuff that had nothing to do with what you were trying to actually promote, which in my case, or in the case of many other artists was their careers, you know, and their gigs, which was why people were following us on those platform on Facebook in the first place was to, was to keep track of that kind of stuff to see where we're playing and that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, and then Facebook just took that away as, as they can, you know, just overnight, you know, because they, you know, we don't control anything. You know, so the corporate social media platforms taking over our means of communication has been absolutely devastating for society and uh, devastating for the left and devastating for artists, uh, for sure. But then other things like music streaming, free music streaming platforms like Spotify, uh, I mean, they've also been completely devastating for artists. And I would really... Can you explain uh, why that is? Well... I, I, yeah. And I mean, basically it's, it's a, it's a bit complicated because I would say that the problem has not specifically been free uh, downloads or mm-hmm. has not been artists having the ability to offer uh, uh, their music for free. That is a fine thing, or at least it can be. And certainly I made it work fine for me for a long time, but mm-hmm. then Spotify came along and that was fine with when they had a paid service but then they started their free service. And of course, you know, as you might imagine, they didn't consult artists before they did this. You know, they just started giving away all the world's music for free uh, in exchange for people having to put up with the occasional advertisement. And, um, you know, basically, you know, people went for that naturally as, as they would. Um, and, and the reason Spotify was able to do that, uh, went to offer the free tier in 2013, was because they had just made an agreement with the big three record labels, uh, which which involves the labels taking the vast majority of profits uh, from uh, of streaming royalties, um, leaving the independent artists with the remainder of it. You know, so uh, which is a totally unfair uh, arrangement that really screws independent artists uh, even more than we were being screwed before. Spotify started working with the big three labels, but um, 
that was that when they started their free tier and got the deal with the three labels and and uh and people could get all the music they wanted all the pop music they wanted for free you know without having to pirate anything you know then um that 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 just changed the whole tide so then you know people just started throwing out their sweet cd players you know understandably and uh you know so then suddenly basically for millions of musicians around the world our our income was cut in half oh you know basically overnight you know because for for millions of of independent musicians around the world uh merch sales used to be about half of your income and you know pirate music piracy as they called it you know free you know illegal downloads they affected the pop musicians and and hollywood you know in a big way for sure but I don't think they had a really significant effect on most independent uh, musicians uh, for a wide variety of reasons. But but what uh, did was when Spotify's free tier came around. That was the. I'm not saying that things would have not gone that way in one way or another anyway. You know, but what the way it went down was was Spotify. That's mm-hmm. who did it. And I think, you know, in that woman, I can't, what's her name? The book, uh, The Rise of Disaster Cap, uh, no, not, 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 not Naomi Klein. No, the, um, the surveillance capitalism, mm-hmm. the, the, the rise of surveillance capitalism. I mean, she makes the point that it, it didn't, it didn't need to be that, uh, this model of, of total sort of parasitic, uh, vulture kind of capitalism of like just, destroying society in the name of of uh, metadata and profit you know it didn't necess- the model didn't necessarily have to go that way i mean with google and and facebook and spotify being these dominant players that that just uh sort of eat the internet alive i mean it didn't necessarily have to go that way it could have been a, a more fair model like like mm-hmm. like apple what w- was i mean as as whatever problems that the corporation has like you know it could have been done in a way that didn't involve like surveilling everybody and and uh, stealing everybody's uh content and selling it back to them for you know to make money <laughs> without rewarding the artists i mean it didn't have to go that way necessarily so I'm, I'm just curious how did you react to uh the emergence of myspace way back when because it antedated facebook right and it was it had a reputation for being more artist friendly and this was pre-streaming and i i remember like i used to when i first discovered it i'd, I'd you know, go to myspace because artists were putting out some of their music there and youtube wasn't very big right so at the time at least initially, it may have even been, I mean, MySpace started before YouTube, right? And so uh, that was the place to go for freely available music that if you weren't going to, you know, pirate something. And so I wondered, did you have a relationship with MySpace and, or did you see, uh, did you see at that point, like, did you think social media was going to be beneficial from an indie uh, musician's perspective? Or did you, did you see the, like, you know, the warning on the wall? Well, originally, the, the way MySpace was was set up was um, was pretty useful and for for artists. Um, the, the problem was with any of those platforms that things can just change, and and then it's they're not doing the same things they were doing before. So it's always uh, 
you know, the problem is like depending on these platforms. And of course, other things can happen, like the platforms just become irrelevant and, you know, replaced by, by another d platform that becomes more dominant that's doing something similar that people decided was better, like Facebook. But um, yeah, when MySpace existed in the early years, it was, it was uh, useful as a, as a tool for, for artists. But I guess I, um, there were other, well, there are other, there were other equally irrelevant now, um, <laughs> platforms that I was giving away music on uh, that were useful because I could harvest email addresses, uh, when people were downloading songs, which, um, now, uh, you know, people understand how useful that is. But at, back then I think, uh, you know, people might've thought you're crazy to be giving away your music, but actually, you know, what artists knew that uh, we might not have been throwing around the word metadata back then, you know, but artists, any artist knew that if you could get somebody's email address, you know, when they download, if you gave them a song and they, and they, you know, that's a great deal for you, you know, for the artist, you know, because then they're on your email list and then maybe they're come, they'll come to a show, maybe, you know, they'll donate to an album project. I mean, there's a lot of things that can happen when you have that kind of relationship with somebody that is like they've given you their email to get on your email list. You know, that might not seem like much, uh, but it's a significant uh, development in, in, uh, you know, in, in the relationship between artists and, and their audience. And you got to have an, an email list and, and it's a, it's a vitally useful thing. And, uh, that's, uh, you know, and it, and it used to be easy to directly have a relationship with um, people who liked your music through platforms that you controlled. Uh, and that is only the case now if you, you know, want to try to bypass the superhighways. You know, basically everybody's on Spotify and, and YouTube. And so if you're not on Spotify and YouTube, you, you're just not there. You're yeah. just nowhere, you know, so... You know, you can you can still use the old platforms from 20 years ago. Some of them still exist, and you can tell people like, "Yeah, if you want to have my music for free, you can download it there on SoundClick." And but people just you know, some people will do that, but you know, most people will be like, "Oh, what's that? I I don't I don't I never go to SoundClick." <laughs> right. You know, something that I I won't take us down uh, this detour road too much further. Although I did want you know, I think it's good because you're a complete person and music's a big part of you know, who you are and what you do. And so I wanted to, you know, touch on that in the interview. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't mind uh, the detour if, if you don't object too much. No, but, not at all. Uh, I was, you know, I, I noticed uh, just from, I guess, a consumer's perspective or, you know, a, 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 a music fans uh, point of view that uh, when artists make singles or, or albums available now, they're primarily through the dominant platforms and oftentimes you can't, I mean, you can, you know, acquire this file in other ways, but you can't easily just download the MP3. Like you either have to get it on Amazon or iTunes or YouTube or, or, you know, or Spotify or insert, you know, your, your corporate, your preferred corporate platform there. And that that's so bizarre to me, right? Like the actual, uh, you know, file that contains the music is not, easily available oftentimes anymore just individually it, it, does that have you noticed that as well and like did that strike you as 
it's kind of odd when when that or at least unfortunate given you know the monopolization of uh, the platform yeah. monopolization yeah i think it's it's very strange um but it's certainly the way things are going i mean people just uh they just live in the Spotify universe and they got all their playlists organized in there. And, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, if you've gotten into Spotify, then, um, it's very understandable why people have just sort of, uh, given up on collecting, um, MP3s or anything else and, uh, just figure that they'll have a Spotify membership. I mean, if they're really serious about listening to music and they don't like ads, then they'll pay 10 bucks a month for it. And, mm-hmm. Um, it's it's pretty impressive uh, what um, Spotify has actually achieved because um, actually um, it used to be I think uh, twenty or thirty years ago the average music consumer um, the average person uh, bought a forty five dollars a year worth of uh, um, uh, CDs or other physical stuff. And now uh, the average music consumer spends eighty dollars a year on mm. streaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's uh, th- there's people are spending more now, um, and but th- the money isn't going <laughs> to the artists. I can, can tell you that. You know, I mean, artists that used to make like me. I mean, I used to sell hundreds and hundreds of CDs a month uh, on a typical uh, tour, just playing, you know, gigs for you know, 30, 40 people, you know, that kind of, those kind of shows, you know, I'd, I'd sell in a, in a given month, uh, hundreds of uh, CDs. And, and that, that was a lot of, a lot of artists did that. It was half of their income, but uh, you know, so that, I mean, that was, it was, it represented tens of thousands of dollars a year for, for so many artists, you know, and now uh, from uh, 2 million or what one, 1 million songs streamed a year on Spotify, approximately, you know that breaks down to getting something like two hundred, two hundred fifty dollars a month. So it's about a tenth of uh, what you know I would have made before selling CDs. So, I mean, it's a hard comparison to make because it's not exact. Like we're talking about some cross between CDs and radio, because you know it's not like people are like as you say they're not collecting MP3s anymore. Mm-hmm. You know they're just doing the streaming. So it's um, it's a new category, I guess. It's not quite like it's not quite radio, but it's not quite collecting music either. It's you know, it's its own thing. But so to bring us back, and maybe this will be a, a segue that can do it because I made another comment as, as you were talking, and uh, when I first asked uh, about the uh, social media, you'd mentioned the you didn't use this term, but this is the term that came to mind. The emotionally potent oversimplifications. I think that's like, a, a, it's, a, it's a, I don't think Noam Chomsky coined it, but he certainly popularized it in relation to conventional mass media primarily and, you know, the conditions of concision and other institutional and, and ideological uh, filters that, that produce certain types of news, including, you know, the, the sensationalist variety and whatever you can fit into that, you know, short little time slot or the, you know, the, the headline or, or whatever. And oftentimes it's going to appeal to, uh, you know, our, our base instincts because that's going to get, now it's going to get clicks, right, to, to translate into the online world. And I was thinking that, that, you know, there's a lot of discussion among folks who study media as to whether, I don't know if there's a lot of discussion, but there's some as to whether and to what extent 
that propaganda model of the mass media that, that Herman and Chomsky formulated back in the 80s with respect to the traditional media, if, uh, to what extent it applies now in the new media sphere. And I think that's one strong parallel, how the algorithms sort of reproduce those that emphasis on emotionally potent over simplifications that you know elicit these kind of knee-jerk reactions that get us really fired up and angry. Matt Taibbi wrote a book uh, called Hate Inc. Why today's mm. media makes us despise one another, something something like that. Mm. And and there's an interesting connection between what's going on in the still existing broadcast sphere, but how the same sorts of reactions that are elicited, you get that uh, reinforced online through social media. Um, and, 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 and I think, you know, what we've talked about um, already, the, uh, the censorious tendencies and the, the left eating itself, I think, I don't think that um, that helps matters much. And actually, maybe this is a good way to seg into uh, segue into what I wanted to ask about, which is a new song that, that you put out. Uh, you recorded a new song late last month titled Cancel Culture Commander, Ballad of an Anarcho-Puritan. And I think it's pretty great. One of the reasons that I'll, I'll say that is because uh, I I play basketball on, a, on occasion. Um, I'm only 5'2", so not, not the greatest player in the world or even good uh, by most standards. But I'm, I'm okay, a little bit of handle. And there's a, there's sort of an ethic that prevails when you're, you're hooping and I'm not even uh, great about adhering to it because I'm a smaller guy, but you know, like if somebody's playing you hard, uh, you don't typically just resort to foul calling constantly. You, you play them as hard as they're playing you. Right. And, 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 that, and I appreciate that, that approach, which I, I think you've, you've taken here uh, rather than just, you know, being bullied, kind of uh, standing up a little, uh, a little bit for yourself and doing what, what you do best, which is make music. And so I wonder if you could explain the concept behind that cancel culture commander song. Uh, and you, you do mention somebody uh, explicitly, Shane Burley. So I wondered if you could comment on your beef with Burley or his beef with you, as it were. Yeah, well, so I, I mean, I just first of all completely agree with uh, the the uh, tendency of of social media, the way the algorithms are set up to do exactly what uh, Chomsky and Herman talked about the corporate media doing, the way it's set up, and and, and it's fascinating um, because it, I think it's it's fascinating how both of those things work because in both cases you're talking about so many actually good, well-meaning people engaging in in these kinds of really uh toxic uh bad uh behaviors and in and spreading disinformation without necessarily even uh wanting to mm. in many cases you know and i think with the mass media the way that they set it up with you know the editors are there's people powerful people who decide what these reporters are going to do what stories are going to do who they're going to talk to and then uh it, there's only this illusion that the, that there's a free press or that the reporters have have generally much power to do anything and then when they do uh, have an assignment to talk to somebody they only have like one minute you know or you know whatever 100 words or whatever it is to uh, actually talk to them and uh, there's certain subjects they're supposed to address so I mean basically you know that is not 
really a free press. I mean, the, 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 the stories aren't even long enough to have a chance to explore, yeah. uh, you know, in so much of the press to, to actually get to the truth. And that's intentional. And with social media is very much the same with, you know, the Facebook posts that tend to get seen are like the, a few paragraphs of emotionally intense, like, uh, you know, eloquence about some situation rather than the more lengthy expositions, which of course don't, mm -hmm. don't get seen or the links to some blog posts, which of course mm -hmm. won't get seen at all. But uh, Cancel Culture Commander is about, uh, specifically, it's about Shane Burley, who is a cancellation campaigner. Whatever he calls himself, uh, which is what he calls himself is an anti-fascist, whatever he means by that. But what he is is an authoritarian and, and who engages consistently, constantly online on Twitter, along with his colleagues Spencer Sunshine and Alexander Reed Ross, and dozens of anonymous Twitter accounts. These three luminaries who have names, who publish for various presses and publish articles and you know have some kind of legitimacy in some circles, these people are troll farmers. They are cancellation campaigners. This is not me uh, hypothesizing. This is all uh, I ha this is all abundantly obvious to anybody that's paying attention on Twitter, and if they're not, I can show them the documentation to demonstrate that this is a troll farm. These people are campaigning uh, against uh, the professions of various people, including me. This is a thing that they do. So whatever they, whatever they call themselves, however they pretend to identify intellectually, or however they think they identify intellectually, whatever, uh, they think uh, they are doing. What they are doing is conducting cancellation campaigns. They can call the campaigns what they want, but that's what they're doing. And that's what I'm describing in the song. I'm describing how <coughs> Shane Burley is a cancellation campaigner, specifically. And he also does journalistic work, too, and, and has authored the book or two or and i would just wonder i'm curious if you've read his work or engaged with it at all he yes i've read a lot of his uh his sad excuse at journalism yes and i have uh and i don't think he's actually written a book but he has okay. edited he's edited books written uh by people who include really great folks including friends of mine uh, who who um, about uh, and about the, the anti-fascist struggle? <clears throat> so he um, has uh, done you know work that uh, as far as being the editor of compilations of of, uh, of a book a compilation of essays about uh, the struggle of uh, against uh, the far right, he has done legitimate uh, work. Um, but most of what he writes about. Uh, most of the articles that he writes are oriented towards rooting out anti-Semitism on the left. And he takes a lot of different um, sort of approaches to doing that. But, uh, and, you know, but that is the essence of most of what he writes about and most of his uh, journalism, uh, whether he's publishing on his own website or for Haaretz. That's his favorite theme. And of course, to write articles attacking people he doesn't like, uh, as well. I'm not all that familiar, which is why I asked. I've heard of Burley and you know, heard of him, you know, in the context of 
of the the left and anti-fascism and then because of you but uh just curious about that then also has he responded or said anything to you since you released that song and has the song been otherwise well received yeah it's been well received um but he um uh, well, he most most recently on April twenty fourth, he published a many thousands word uh, uh, piece uh, condemning me and Gilad Atzman, who I'm apparently you know it's all about me and Gilad, which of course everything about Gilad applies to me because since I supposedly support Gilad, and then I uh, you know he can condemn me for anything he can condemn Gilad for. So it's basically a a very confused strange very long piece uh that he published in it's going down and in, in the anarchist federation website and various other places with a s significant following uh, you know for those folks who are into those uh, in that those corners of of uh the uh left um but um and and so i responded uh to that with a with uh, within a article that was quoting uh the relevant parts of his accusations towards me and and refuting them and uh and also i wrote that song uh, but uh I, I don't i haven't heard of any of any response from shane about my response to his article or the, his response to the song but i'm sure there will be responses forthcoming and the the article that you wrote where's that available Oh, on on uh, my blog at at basically davidrovics.com slash this week, it's it's uh it's uh, it's also in podcast form, and if people would rather listen to it because it's very long, so it's a when it, in podcast form it still takes a half an hour, but it's uh, yeah. So the parenthetical title of that cancel culture commander song was "Ballad of an Anarcho Puritan," and you've used the term anarcho Puritan, anarcho Puritanism. Uh, in this interview already. And so I wondered if you could offer a working definition of sorts um, of anarcho-Puritanism for our listeners. And then I'm wondering if you see that anarcho-Puritanism, like how it operates within the anarchist tradition and within the current cultural milieu. And if you see the uh, Purit tr puritanical strand at odds with the politics and values that Anarchism, anarchism has historically been associated with because that's how it sort of appears to me, right? Like the libertarian facets of anarchism and the non-punitive forms and practices of uh, justice and problem solving and the anti-authoritarianism that anarchism has you know, long been about. It that seems like anarch the the puritanical tendency seems to be very much at odds with that so is is that how you see it and and why how does how does that work like how, how is that a thing yeah it's very complex uh, but um I, I think that basically yeah i i would say i mean there's among the anarchist movement around the world and the left more broadly around the world there's been lots of uh, different uh, tendencies and lots of heated arguments and lots of uh, you know even you know worse conflicts between different uh, factions and so I mean this is it's not a it's not a new thing uh, but uh, the basic uh, any any movement uh, anarchist or otherwise that's that's ever been successful has been one that has been has had a lot of points of unity of course they also tend to be happening during times when there's 
a hell of a lot to be organizing against and to be opposing. I mean, you know, a lot of people involved with a lot of movements that may have been possibly facing possible uh, schisms uh, often found unity in the strength of the opposition against them, you know, like the police and the military or the, you know, whoever they were uh, in, in a struggle with the authorities uh, trying to censor them or imprison them all. You know, people tend to band together uh, under those kinds of circumstances, uh, or at least that can happen, you know, but uh, the, you know, the opposite uh, can happen as well. Um, you know, but I, it is not a libertarian tendency. This it's an authoritarian tendency, absolutely. And of course, the left uh, has a lot of history of authoritarian tendencies uh, within it. So you know, but but definitely the the tendency that we're talking about of uh, anarcho puritanism, as I like to call it, is an authoritarian tendency, and puritanism is an authoritarian uh, uh, religion. Uh, you know, I mean, it is a completely intolerant authoritarian form of religion was what Puritanism was all about. And, um, you know, it's not exceptional in that way. Lots of other sects, uh, Christian sects, have been uh, extremely intolerant, uh, to say the least. Um, but, uh, you know, the, there wasn't a Catholic church in Rhode Island for like 200 years, you know, not for, not for the lack of Catholics, you know, but for, you know, it was death sentence to be a Catholic or a Quaker or an Indian, you know, uh, the Puritan rule was a horrible, horrible thing. And uh, this is the kind of intolerance uh, that I think uh, is, is uh, that we're looking at uh, with these uh, kinds of people who have absolutely no uh, capacity to uh, reason in any kind of, uh, um, you know, in any kind of conventional sense. You know, they, they just uh, cast aspersions and they have their completely rigid belief system, which doesn't allow them to... Uh, uh, let in any sunlight at all, you know, so, uh, they are, it is, it is a, it is a political tendency that seems to be as confused and as, uh, based on moral outrage and, uh, and, and, and seeking, uh, seeking purity and seeking to, uh, seeking to dispel the impure and cast out the impure and excommunicate the impure. You know, this is, uh, the tendency that we're talking about within, uh, the, um, what we might call the anarchist, uh, scene, um, in, uh, certain pockets of the U S today, like Portland. Uh, and, and I'm not characterizing the anarchist uh, scene generally as being represented by folks like Shane. It's, it, I don't think it is. Um, but their tendency is louder than it would other, you know, that, than it might. Um, it's, it's, it can be very loud because when you cast these kinds of aspersions, people are good people and they, they, uh, they're concerned. They, they don't want to be um, uh, supporting anti-Semites or racists or Holocaust deniers or whatever, or, you know, um, you know, a sexist or whoever else, you know, if you're being accused of all kinds of stuff, uh, whether, uh, falsely or not, you know, this is going to have a huge impact on a lot of people, you know, um, but, uh, it's, it's, uh, I, I think anarcho-puritanism is a, is a term I made up to describe, uh, this tendency and, um, but as with any other, uh, term. It's an imperfect term. It's not meant to be a term that tells you everything you need to know about this political tendency. It's just two words that I threw together that I think is uh, are, are representative enough of the tendency to be my, my favorite uh, term. I think it's better than calling them left cancel culture because um, 
it's not a cultural phenomenon. They're more organized than that. It's it's uh it's a it's more of a political ideology. Does anarcho-puritanism have reach beyond anarchist circles? Yeah, definitely. They have they have a lot of impact among liberals, which is why I mean, you know, and they have impact among anybody who's on on Twitter who who has a conscience. Basically, you know, I mean, if you're if you're if you know anybody who's concerned about accusations of sexism, racism, anti-Semitism, you know, which is most good people, you know, uh, I think that there's a lot of folks who are more immune to. Um, this kind of stuff because they come out of uh, political backgrounds or other kinds of backgrounds where they're used to being denounced for all kinds of stuff. They're used to being called all kinds of names and all kinds of false allegations. You know, this is very, I mean, a lot of people who have any kind of background in sort of communist or socialist politics and different uh, p parties that break from each other and all these, I mean, they're, they're used to these kinds of, you know, these kinds of false allegations or, or, or wildly exaggerated, uh, you know, aspersions being cast on other people to make them look bad after the party split and one side wants to make themselves look like the more moral or the better or the side that more people should join. I mean, you know, this kind of stuff, uh, you know, has a long, has a long history, but it's, it's, uh, you know, and, 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 so, and, and it has a history on the left generally. It's certainly not just within the anarchist scene, but these people like Shane Spencer and Alexander specifically refer to themselves as anarchists. And, and certainly it is a phenomenon that exists within, uh, within the sort of black block anarchist type of scene. You know, I mean, I always, I always want to differentiate between the sort of, you know, as much as I love many people, uh, in the black block, uh, or what we called the black block 20 years ago, which mm -hmm. now people are often referring to as Antifa. But, you know, we, uh, the, the black block or Antifa or whatever, it doesn't not represent uh, most people who consider themselves anarchists. You know, most people who consider themselves anarchists actually don't, uh, you know, aren't into punk rock necessarily, you know, and, and they don't wear black and they actually bathe daily. And, you know, I mean, it's not, uh, you don't have to be a, a black clad wearing, uh, you know, vegan in order to be an anarchist. You know, there's a, anarchism is a, is a much broader, much bigger yeah. tent than that, you know, and, and, you know, historically most anarchists have not fallen into the kind of lifestylist, um, you know, definition, uh, you know, it's, it's more, you know the people who organized the protests in Seattle that shut down the the World Trade Organization. You know the people that organized the Direct Action Network. They were anarchists. You know, but they were not anarchists of the variety that were smashing Nike Town. That was a much smaller uh, little uh, subset of anarchists that that think that smashing corporate windows is a useful thing to do at a big uh, protest. You know, the, the vast majority of, of the people or involved with organizing the thing didn't think that was a good idea. And those were also anarchists, you know? So, I mean, like a movie, like the movie that I have not seen that was about the WTO protests apparently characterized the black bloc as the anarchists and had uh, other people from other elements of the the more bigger elements of the protests that were shutting down the meetings, uh, referring to the black bloc as the anarchists, and nobody would have actually done that in reality. Nobody called the black bloc the anarchists. They were the black bloc because the anarchists were the ones organizing the fucking protests for sixty thousand people that shut down the WTO. 
there has been though some overlap between those different strands of anarchism whether oh, yeah. like insurrectionary anarchists and movement anarchists and lifestyle anarchists and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive and no would you agree no, they, with that they, yeah definitely they often go to the same protests and and then you got the insurrectionary ones causing problems so yeah there they, they, they <laughs> there's lots of overlap and uh you know there's also a lot of uh uh, there's also a lot of people that just grow up and, and, and think, decide that it's, you know, maybe not a good idea to just smash windows at every possible opportunity. You know, it tends to be a youthful thing that, that people think that it's a good idea to smash windows when in doubt, smash a window that that's usually not, uh, you know, middle-aged folks who, who, who think that's a good idea. And it's not because the middle-aged folks have all become conservative. You know, it's, it's because right. sometimes age brings a little bit of wisdom and, and you think like actually maybe the best political strategy does not involve smashing the windows of every corporate store I come across on this march. I, I don't usually think that's the optimal political strategy either. Although I'll I'll acknowledge some sympathies to certain insurrectionary and uh, anarchist sensibilities and 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 some practices like and. Just to, I think, maybe be fair, right? If we're thinking historically, like the the Birmingham riot, right? Like that that was a, a major driver of civil rights legislation and change in the country, and also the burning down of the Seven Eleven, you know, in Ferguson. Like I, I'm from Southern Illinois, so I was there in, in uh, St. Louis and Ferguson and, and covered a, a little bit of it for uh, Toward Freedom uh, when Ben Dangle was editor in chief there. And you know, if if the Seven Eleven wasn't burned down, would would the same level of national attention been received? You know, maybe not. And so I, I wondered, like, if if you if you see any role for those, you know, um, the the more insurrectionary anarchists or more, you know, uh, I don't want to say like riot prone, but that 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 kind of intense form of direct action. If if you think it, it can be useful for a movement, if if you know, coordinated strategically. Oh, I, I think absolutely, and and I think it really depends on the situation and and what we're really talking about. And what, I mean, when we're talking about uh, when we're talking about an an, an a large scale uh, expression of outrage uh, from a uh, constantly oppressed. Uh, element of the population which is what we're talking about in uh, the uprising in ferguson uh, it's not the same as having um you know a situation like thousands of people having a a, a, a big uh, a protest that's uh, focused on nonviolent civil disobedience and then having a few dozen uh, masked uh, youth uh, come and start smashing windows and endangering the uh, protesters. I mean, these are two different situations. So, um, you know, when we're talking about, uh, uh, you know, the, this, yeah, I mean, they're just, they're just uh, different situations. And I, uh, and also I, the, most fundamentally uh, tactics are better when they have mass popular support. And so, and that does not preclude uh, tactics uh, such as uh, burning down corporate stores, uh, mm -hmm. blockading the roads, burning barricades, 
torching police stations, fighting uh, the police. I mean, all these kinds of tactics are very popular in many different societies at many different junctures in history currently around the world today and historically, including in the United States. But uh, they, it, a tactic needs to be uh, a, 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 a very popular one uh, in order to be effective. And if it's mm -hmm. a tiny minority of people who think that this tactic is a good one, and by engaging in it, they're going to alienate the majority of the people involved with the movement that they're supposed to be supporting, mm -hmm. then uh, the tactic is counterproductive and is also one that is often advocated by uh, undercover cops who are f the movement is full of, and sure. they can wear masks and burn dumpsters too, and they mm -hmm. do it all the time. And historically, that's uh, been documented in lots sure. of different cases, which is not to say that anybody burning a dumpster is a cop. But, right. you know, if you want to help the cops, go burn a dumpster in many situations. And I can tell you, you know, from personal experience over and over and over again, as soon as somebody sets the dumpster on fire in Portland over the past several years, that's when most of the people leave. And, you know, <laughs> in case anybody missed that, Mm -hmm. As soon as somebody sets the dumpster on fire, that's when most people leave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, that's I don't, what happens. Yeah, I don't. I don't disagree with that, and uh, and I wouldn't even characterize this as, as pushing back, but just because I try to sort out these ideological tensions myself, and so you know, I'm thinking about books like, like Peter Gelder loses how nonviolence protects the state, and also you know the back and forth circa Occupy between Chris Hedges and David Graeber when Chris Hedges denounced the the Black Bloc. Uh, participation there and, and and Graeber you know pushed back against that and uh, and so I wondered if if uh, how you how you think about maybe like some of those those past tensions and how they were negotiated I mean uh I'm not so familiar with the conversations between Graeber and uh and and uh, um Hedges uh, yeah Hedges but uh, generally, I think they're both absolutely brilliant. And generally, I think um, specifically Hedges um, is, is, has a, his analysis of U.S. history and European history and uh, U.S. imperialism and so many other things, I think is some of the most eloquent, spot-on stuff I've ever encountered. But I think his criticisms of the Black Bloc uh, were really ham-handed and coming from a position of somebody who was not coming out of that uh, movement. Mm. So, I mean, which is not to say that they were irrelevant or wrong, uh, but he was not uh, speaking from uh, the a position of somebody who could be uh, taken seriously by the black block folks that he might have been trying to communicate with. I mean, I, I don't think he did a good job there with that effort. Um, you know, he was just not the right person to be trying to do that. I mean, which is not to say that he shouldn't say whatever he wants to say, and, and sure. uh, you know, but I, I, my own personal efforts to communicate with the black bloc, who uh, around um, some of the tactics that I think have been counterproductive, um, I, I would like to think that I've had more uh, success in my efforts, uh, but um, you know, it, it's 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 a tough one because. Um, 
because it's I understand and at the end of the day you know I completely understand why somebody wants to burn the dumpster and put barricades mm -hmm. in the in the road set them on fire and whatever else you know I understand that I appreciate that I also appreciate how um, maybe uh, if the windows of the Starbucks and the local bank get smashed enough maybe the rent won't go up as much I mean I mm -hmm. I you know personally really appreciate these kinds of tactics and I think uh, there's a lot of uh, usefulness to just keeping corporate businesses smashed on a regular basis, um, especially depending on how you're doing it and and mm -hmm. uh, and and you know whether you're. There's a lot of different ways Deploy to do tactics, these kinds of things. Yes. Yeah. 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 And there's also timing. You know. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't if you're, if you're if you're you know if you're at a march with thousands of people in it lots of families and they're on a you know permitted march and there's a civil disobedience planned and, and then you go uh start you know smashing the local mcdonald's that that's not the right time to smash the mcdonald's but um you know at the same time i'm, I'm not going to condemn uh the people who are who are doing it i'm going to talk about i want to talk about the why people do that and and whether and talk about the timing and talk about you know whether they they might want to think about that you know i'm i'm not out to condemn people or cancel them or tell them that they shouldn't be part of a movement uh, just to be clear you know when i talk about tactics that may or may not be counterproductive you know that there's there's ways that we need to deal with that and one thing we need to realize for sure is that um those who are not undercover cops who are engaged with things like burning dumpsters have a lot of other uh reasons why they might think burning dumpsters is a good idea and one of them might be because they're insurrectionary anarchists and another might be because they ran away from home and they are really angry and upset and their parents uh were uh bad to them and i mean half the black block uh, that i know are actually living on the streets and are teenagers and are runaways i mean let's be realistic here we're not talking about uh you know we're not we're not generally talking about like really uh you know, we are sometimes talking about really sophisticated, well-read uh, political anarchist ideologues, and we are mostly not talking about uh, really, you know, that crowd. We're mostly talking about um, troubled teenagers. I was thinking another source of uh, inspiration, perhaps, as regards coordination and collaboration between those who are more focused on you might call nonviolent civil disobedience or at least the the less intense forms of insurrectionary direct action but you know working together with uh with folks who are in, interested in, in that I, i'm thinking back um charles cobb who was a member of the student nonviolent coordinating committee and an historian journalist he wrote a book that nonviolent stuff will get you killed about how the civil rights movement was protected and sustained by those who weren't af afraid to you know uh, carry guns and you know protect folks against the you know white racists in the south who might otherwise disrupt a meeting or or something along those lines but so there is you know historical precedent and there's good reason for you know trying to sort out the differences and and collaborate and not alienate or puritanize if you, if you will mm -hmm. uh and so speaking of of that along the same lines i'm wondering what forms of organizing resistance collective action or even intellectual or cultural work that goes against the grain that's going on today do you see is imbued with some potential or holding promise 
I think there's there's great potential uh, in all kinds of different uh, tactics and um, movements, and it, and it really depends on the time and place and and uh, like in the European context, I and in many other countries, I would say that um, there's a lot more potential promise for uh, electoral politics than in a place like the United States or you know where where the system is really rigged. Um, <laughs> as Trump's correctly points out, but not in the same ways that Trump says it's rigged. But the system is rigged uh, so that there's no possibility of a, of a third party getting anywhere, and the two parties are both, uh, you know, capitalist parties. But, um, but I think uh, it, when tactics are popular, and, uh, then, then they have a lot of potential for getting somewhere. And when movements are filled with optimistic people that, that have a tactic that they want to try uh, to change things with and they believe in it and they're organized, then tactics can work. I think it really depends on, uh, I don't think there's any particular tactic that works necessarily better than uh, others uh, because it really depends on, on historical uh, circumstances and the society and how it's organized. But I think, um, Definitely, there's a lot of historical precedents for uh, violent revolutions potentially uh, being very effective or not, and there's also a lot of uh, a lot of historical precedents for nonviolent civil disobedience uh, ha- making a lot of changes in societies, um, and also involving a lot of terrible consequences like practitioners of nonviolent civil disobedience being savagely beaten and killed, which was a feature of the civil rights movement a constant feature of the civil rights movement people being maimed for life you know but in those beatings you know by police and and right-wingers you know mm-hmm. and uh, you know yeah i mean so that that's it's but of course violent revolution also tends to involve a lot of death as well so i mean there's uh and yeah. and of course you know militant uh social movements um you know that involve uh arms uh usually involve practitioners in the movement getting killed mm-hmm. you know so that's uh although sometimes that there's a good chance of that happening anyway like the bloody labor history that the yeah. you know early 20th century which uh, is what then, usually gives rise to the militants in the first place right i mean yeah, you know the, yeah. the bombing campaigns in the late teens never would have happened if not for the palmer reeds in the first place i mean they, or that the the the, the there were bomber there were bombing there were bombing campaigns before the Palmer raids, but in, in every case these are responses to the most horrific repression of mm-hmm. of of movements. I mean, in in in, like in in terms of most of these kinds of you know violent campaigns, you know, they 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 never come out of nowhere. You know, we're anarchist violence historically has been insignificant, you know, mm-hmm. compared to the violence against. The people from the state yeah you just mentioned the the palmer raids and they played a role in decimating the industrial workers of the world you have an iww shirt on there i, I noticed yeah. I'm, a, I'm a um i have a red card i'm a wobbly uh member yeah. of the freelance journalist union currently and some would argue that the iww has had a little bit of a resurgence as of late i would say the fju yeah. has played a role in that as has the incarcerated workers organizing committee you know, which helped coordinate the uh, nationwide prisoner, or you know, styled as nationwide prisoner strikes, uh, a couple years back. And so I'm, I'm curious. And then also, you could argue, as, as some have, that the IWW organizing and um, 
Starbucks stores in the early aughts helped lay the groundwork for the unionization campaign that's going on currently. Um, you can maybe draw a little bit of a through line there. And so I'm, I'm just curious if you, uh, if you think that the IWW has had that, that resurgence as, as I characterized it and, and if you think it can play a role in, you know, important, an important role in uh, social change today. Yeah, I think so. And, and I think also that just the idea of the IWW and the, the kind of organizing principles and, and also the, just the, the um, yeah the the concept of the union also in many other ways like when people discover the history of it as well and and the um, it, there's there's a lot of the IWW is especially relevant today in terms of you know all these disparate workplaces uh, with gig workers and people who are not in the kind of traditional workplaces that are easier to organize by big unions. I mean, there, I think there's there's a lot of promise for IWW-style organizing to sweep the service sector, um, but uh, I think um, there's also a lot of obstacles. And, mm. and uh, it's, I mean, there's, it's got to become a, a, a much bigger popular movement uh, of organizing if, if that's going to happen. But it it is also there's indications that it's that this kind of uh, thinking is is more and more widespread and more and more people in different small workplaces like Starbucks and and bigger places like Amazon warehouses are are getting the idea that nobody's going to come rescue them from the you know AFL CIO if they're going to organize they got to do it themselves and so that's a real DIY kind of ethic mm -hmm. and and definitely. Uh, I mean, I think the IWW is all over the place with these different uh, groups. I mean, there's there's lots of lots of uh, you know people who are who have some degree of background with the IWW at least conceptually, uh, who are part of the different efforts in lots of different towns. And another area that's potentially ripe for organizing, and I'd I'd be interested if if um, IWW folks, if fellow wobblies, were to maybe get more involved in, in this area of organizing too, which would be around uh, uh, rent, tenants' rights, uh, mm. you know, pushing back against landlords. You have a song called Landlord and one titled Just a Renter, like them both. We'll, we'll talk about your songs a little bit later. Uh, but where do you see the struggle over rent and housing and tenants' rights and the like headed? And do you have any ideas how it might be improved? Because I know you've You've been, at least from what I can tell from afar, somewhat involved in that there in Portland? Yeah, I mean, and since I've moved to Portland, my rent has gone up by 250%. And, uh, and that's totally normal for people all over the city and, of course, in lots of other cities. And uh, so, yeah, I've been involved with uh, Portland Tenants United and, and uh, writing a lot of songs and singing at protests and different uh, you know, things like that, basically, you know, the usual musical involvement. But I've also been involved a little bit with some organizing efforts. Um, and um, I think it's really the biggest issue we face as a society today. I mean, other than maybe climate change, I mean, this, this, and, you know, and it ties right in with climate change because we can't possibly deal with climate change until we deal with the capitalist real estate market. Cause I mean, everybody's just, you know, the cities are just expanding and out of necessity, people are buying houses further and further away that involve more and more driving. 
and uh, you know because everything's less and less affordable, and you know, this kind of uh, situation has to be controlled by by government regulators and by laws. You can't just leave everything on the free market so the capitalists can charge whatever they want, which is the situation now. You got these massive, massive real estate companies and banks and you know, running whole operations where they're not even selling real estate anymore. They're just renting thousands and thousands of apartments and having management companies to run their rental operations. It's really like, it's really like, you know, royalty and peasants more and more. And it's, uh, it's unsustainable. And you've got whole generations that don't even have a hope of trying to buy a house, you know, where that's just a ridiculous thing to even dream about, right? prices are just so impossible compared to what people make you know it's i have uh, no some... hope of, of ever <laughs> no <laughs> not me neither it's, it's, uh, right now i'm renting this this studio uh unit which is in, in the back of a, a larger front house and uh mm -hmm. and it's it's incredibly overpriced <laughs> and, and the rent not keeps bad. going up my landlord is really frustrating me at the moment so the the uh, talking to you about this is really resonating. Yeah. And so um, I also wanted to ask about music a little bit and what kind of music and other art forms are you into today? Like what's resonating with you and why? And is there anything that you'd like to hear or see or read more of? Oh, gosh. I mean, I don't really pay much attention to trends but there's just so many artists out there that that uh that are wonderful and and um and that has been the case for uh decades and there's always new ones uh coming on to the scene and other there's always old ones dying you know but <laughs> it's a continuum and um there's all kinds of different artists i could i could mention that i think are doing great uh great stuff but in terms of um musical styles i mean you know the certainly the impact of of hip-hop would be impossible to overstate but i'd say that's you know that's true of a lot of different uh musical styles that have you know been you know that have had had, had a huge impact on on every other form of music which as as hip-hop has done you know but um I mean that's one of those things where I think you can you can hear you can hear the hip hop uh, influence in in so many different artists that at this point that it's like um you, you don't even notice it anymore it's it's uh, you know it's pervasive you know. but that's um I guess most of my favorite artists I wouldn't necessarily characterize as uh, hip hop artists but but definitely hip hop's all over the place and and uh but uh you know, I, I guess I guess I always have a hard time sort of talking about musical genres or or styles or trends because I just think that the world is just full of people and there's a lot of them who are making music and and there's just so much going on as as many different sort of forms of music as there are people and small communities sure. and, and and the genre thing was always something that that the industry that the you know the the music industry invented and and that that uh, of course journalists talk about because they need to have words to talk about these things but i think for most of the musicians they resist the whole concept of genre 
so do you have any current plans for your own craft you know, intentions to experiment or go in new directions artistically or hopes for any collaborations going forward or do you have any new songs or albums in the works anything you can share with us oh lot lots of hopes for lots more collaboration i love doing the collaborations and um got a been making a lot of recordings over the past couple of years but i don't have any particular uh plans coming up um uh, to make uh, new recordings um, specifically, but that'll change soon, I'm sure. Um, yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> and so uh, on the subject of music, I wanted to mention that my top five David Rovick songs, uh, if you'll permit me to share, and this is in no particular order, it would take me much longer to, I'd have to think, uh, much harder about how I'd rank them if I if I could even do that. But I would say Ballad of a Wobbly, although I will qualify or specify the initial version that you put out, not the one that appeared on the album that you released later, which was good. I, I just, I, I like the rawness of the first one. Mm -hmm. um, and then let's see, I remember Warsaw, which I played at the end of a podcast with your permission, a podcast that I was co-hosting a while back. Um, and then also Just a Renter, which I had mentioned previously, and probably The Last Lincoln Veteran. Um, although honorable mentions include St. Patrick's Battalion, uh, that song about the legendary Greek riot dog, your song about 1848, and the one about robber barons. And there, there are, are quite a few that, that I enjoy, but those would be maybe my, my top ones. And so I wondered, uh, where do those songs fit in your own list, or if you have a different top five of your own work? I I don't uh, I don't have a top five because I keep on discovering songs that I forgot and then I think oh this is a really good song and uh, you know that happens a lot so I don't really uh, um, but I'm always interested in in what other people's favorites are and it's been one of the most fun things about Spotify has been to see you know, which songs um, other people are listening to. Although I think that has as much to do with whether it was recorded with a band as anything else, because those are the songs that people tend to like, it, it, the ones that are solo acoustic. If I didn't record them with a band, then they never are, are almost never become one of the more popular ones on, huh. on Spotify. That's interesting, because I like the the man with his guitar just you know doing his mm -hmm. thing although i will also say and i i hope i didn't skip over this but i i meant to mention behind the barricades if i if i didn't mm -hmm. that, that's my, my top five um mm -hmm. so yeah ba ballad of wobbly behind the barricades i remember warsaw just a renter and the last lincoln veteran if i was forced uh to choose and uh i i really like your duets with uh, lorna mckinnon and mm. the the just a renter uh, the one that you did with her with the cello, uh, yeah. I, I like I like the cello stuff too. Like yeah, that was really fire. I don't I don't know if you have any plans to return to the the cello anytime soon, but I do I do want to get more into playing. I've just gotten it back out recently, and uh, and I've been really into mando related instruments like the octave mandolin. And Are you going to be? So. Uh, performing or recording with uh, McKinnon again anytime? I hope so. I don't have particular plans to, but I really want to. We just had a gig together a couple nights ago with me and her and, and another singer named Kamala Emanuel, and it was wonderful. Three and McKinnon's party. based in, in Scotland, is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so is there anything, David, that we didn't touch on that you think might be important to share as far as this interview is concerned? No, I think you covered a heck of a lot of ground in the past two hours. <laughs> really I try. <laughs> well, thanks, David, for participating in this first ever Waywards video interview. I really appreciate it. Oh, excellent. I'm glad to be your first. Thank you, James. It's been a pleasure, really. Yeah. And I'll... Uh...